very much appreciated the words that have been shared this evening, very valuable and insightful things. We think about God's kingdom and the cost of walking in it and living in it and becoming part of it. Last night, we uh, used this little illustration here on the board. I'll just hang it back up and again, risk a collapse. So we can look at that. And since it wasn't taken away today, we'll just leave it there for a little reminder. But uh, last evening, it was impossible to do justice to everything that's on this whiteboard. You just can't do it. But we did talk about a few things. We talked last night about a holy God with holy requirements and a holy law. We talked about uh, sin, what it thinks, what it does, where it leads a person, what its end results are. We talked about the timeless invitation of God when he said, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. And that can only happen here. It can only happen when a person comes to the feet of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the requirements to repent of his sin, confess the Lord is sufficient for that need, and uh, believe that Jesus is the answer to that. We spoke of the language of the cross. This cross speaks of the cost of man's sin. That's what it cost God to allow him to forgive us our sins. Uh, I think all the sins of the Old Testament looked forward to this. Every sin that was committed afterwards looks back to that. And I don't think even the Old Testament sacrifices would have had value had they not been concluded and, and finished in the work of Jesus Christ. And so even all the previous things were found, found resolution there. This cross speaks of the justice of God. It also speaks of God's love to man. I'd like to pick up where we left off last night a little bit. This one. We, we talked about it briefly. When a person decides to come from sin to the feet of Jesus and then gets up from there and walks forward, what does that look like? What happens? How can a person live under God's approval instead of God's judgment? What is it about a person's life that's changed from here to here, or from there to here? And how do we experience it? And what does the Bible say about that? Now, we talked last night at length about sin, and the newness of life subject uh, contrasts so directly with the sinful life that we almost have to refer to some of that again tonight. We'd like to do that in a way that shows us what this looks like. And those of us that are honest about life, that have come from the old life into the new life, we still recognize that everything about sin has not um, been totally eradicated. We still face temptation. We still face struggle. We still face the choice, even though our sins have been forgiven, to live above the tendencies and above the temptations that we used to just give into because that was our nature. So we still face that. Sin was first mentioned as an entity back in Genesis chapter 4. And Cain was angry. If you remember the story, Cain was angry because God had accepted Abel and not Cain. And he was meditating rashness. He was feeling the sting of rejection from perhaps God. And before Cain did anything, uh, God came to him with a warning. And in Genesis 4, verse 7, it says, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So God is revealing to Cain here the nature of sin. He says a couple of things. Sin is always near, ready to pounce, in a moment of weakness, ready to tempt, 
at our weakest point. And God said, you must either rule it or it will rule you. You must either live above it or it will live as master of your life. And Cain had this moment of decision. He was feeling the inner vengeance and he saw this as God pointed it out to him. Was he going to resist and win or follow his passions and lose? And Cain lost. Cain lost his temper. He lost his brother. He lost his family. He was turned out in exile. And he lost his place in society. Now I'd like to suggest tonight that we are not called to lose but to win. We're called to win over this entity called sin. And sin is still lurking. It's still crouching. It's still desiring to enslave us to itself. And we're called to understand and implement a path to victory. I'd like to read a couple of verses with you here tonight in Romans. Last night we read in Romans 6. We're going to read a couple of verses in Romans 8. This is descriptive of the new life that we're looking at here on the board. And the first two verses of Romans 8 are well known and beautiful. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So, this is speaking to people that have come out of this and have come through this doorway and are beginning this walk in, in, in newness of life. And there's no condemnation. And the past sin has been dealt with and forgiven. But the success of this life is found in verse 2. We read that. It says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now sin is a law. The law of sin and death was expressed several times in scripture. Uh, Jesus, I believe, said, He that committeth sin is a servant of sin. I think uh, Paul said, Of whom a man is overcome, of him he is brought into bondage. And Peter said something very similar. To whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, some laws don't change. And this is a law that doesn't change. Uh, sin brings death and not only death, but the practice of sin brings slavery. It brings a person into bondage to it. Sin brings death. I think I told you the other evening about this uh, family that had such a tragic set of occurrences over the last number of years, so many funerals. I'll tell you about one. Uh, the woman was a Christian. Her husband was named Mario, and he was a short little man, even shorter than I am. Very gentle man, quiet spoken, friendly, but he was a drunkard. And he would go on three-week drinking binges at a time. He would drink all the money they had, sell what they had, and the poor family, wife with her children trying to buy food and you know the gas was all the electricity had not only been cut but the meter was pulled out of his base and life was hard and so one time she called me wondering if we'd come over and talk because Mario started drinking again and uh, she I knew she wanted to talk about this situation what to do about it so I went over there and we were talking there about the situation and Mario came out of a bedroom he was sleeping there and he had started drinking about six days into this drinking binge. And he was somewhat sober. And so we talked a little bit. And I asked him, did you ever think about quitting this? Did you ever think about trying to find help, trying to find uh, support, and, and doing what it takes to get over this problem? 
He said, well, he's thought of that. And I remembered the choices, chances he had had. A friend of mine had offered to take him far away from his home area to give him a place away from friends and habits for a while. He didn't do it. Um, and I said, don't you know this could kill you? And he said, yeah, he knows it could because his doctor just told him it could not long ago. And so we prayed together, and I left after a while. And six days later, I got a phone call after church on a Tuesday evening. And my co-pastor said, have you heard from Candelaria, the wife of this man? He said, she got home from work today and found Mario dead in the house. So I drove over there, and there was a little porch on the front of the house and a couch out there and a form sitting there with a sheet over it, just about nine feet from where we had knelt together six days earlier to pray for his needs and ask him to make choices. And uh, his wife had left left in that morning feeling awful about his, he was feeling bad and she had to go make some money to feed the children and he thought he would make a little bit of alcohol to try to stave off the kind of agony he was going through and when she came back he was gone. And, and that's a very graphic picture of what this says. Uh, the wages of sin is death. The law of sin is death. And that's in a physical sense. That's not even the spiritual sense but but every person that chooses a life like this, even though they don't die young of overdose of alcohol, uh, everyone dies in some state or another. And it's a law that always works. And you could tell me stories like that. And that law won't change, but you know, and there's some cases where adding a second law makes all the difference. And so, uh, back in the book of Esther, the king declared a law. All the Jews on a certain date were to be killed, to be exterminated. I guess it was open war on the Jews. And Esther stepped in, went to the palace. And all the story that happened is a very interesting story. And the consequence was that the law that the king had made did not change. The laws that he had made about the enemies of the Jews rising up against them was still in effect. He couldn't change that. But he made a second law. And the second law was that all the Jews could band together and defend themselves and even take advantage of their enemies if they chose to do it. And even though the first law was not struck down, the adding of a second law made a huge difference in the outcome. Back in the 1600s, Isaac Newton, I believe for the first time, correctly explained the law of gravity, how gravity works. And men have been obeying the law of gravity ever since creation. Everywhere they went, they walked, or they rode a horse, or they took a ship, or something, but gravity was always ruling in their experience. And uh, I guess to go from Missouri to Oregon took four to six months. It was a long trip, and it took a long time to go places because gravity worked. That was in the 1600s. But in the 1700s, there's a man named Bernoulli, and if you're studying physics and science, you've probably studied this, but this man Bernoulli, came up with a principle that the faster a fluid travels in a certain direction, the less pressure it exerts on the sides of it. For instance, if you have a water pipe with a pressure gauge and you turn the faucet on, the pressure drops because the faster the fluid moves this way, the less sideways pressure it exerts. And he called that, I guess they call it today, the Bernoulli's principle. And you study that in science, you'll get how, how that works. In the early 1900s, the Wright brothers came along. And they took Bernoulli's principle and came up with a shape that was rounded on the top, flat on the bottom. So when this thing goes through the air, the air moves faster over the wing than under the wing. 
And so the, the pressure against it is less on the top than the bottom, and that causes a lift. And they believe that's why wings fly. That's Bernoulli's principle at work in an airplane. And they discovered the principle that defies the law of gravity and allows flight to happen. Now, when the Wright brothers discovered that, and when Bernoulli discovered his principle, that did not mean that the law of gravity stopped working. Gravity works just as well as it always has. But there was another law more powerful, I guess, or at least it counteracted the first one to the extent that as long as being applied, it works. Now, if you're high in the air somewhere and you stop applying it, gravity still works. If somehow Bernoulli's principle stops or you cut power or you, your wings fall off, gravity takes over very quickly. My last flight was from Guatemala City back to Roanoke, Virginia, and I'm so thankful that all the way Bernoulli was stronger than Newton, and he got me all the way back home again because there was one law working in defiance of another law, and it got me home a lot faster than if I would have had to walk. So we have here the law of sin and death. Satan will still destroy men through it. Whoever sin holds sway, it works, and sin is the result of it. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8.2, is this new law that allows me to rise above the old one, and it means I do not have to be subject to the old one. I can find a way to be free of it and rise above it. And I would venture to guess that all of us probably struggle to overcome something even after we've come through this process and are seeking to live a new life. The core of our struggle is probably flesh, our will, our own impulses. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit this evening. I know we're going to be limited by time, but we'll do what we can here. I'd like to read a couple more um, verses here this evening as we get started. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. We read 5 the other evening. We'll read 6 this evening. We'll read 6, 1, and 2 to start. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Skip all the way down to verse 11. There's a lot in the middle we should get, but we don't have time. We'll get these two, 11 and 12. 11 to 14, sorry. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. You could read that verse. Gravity shall not have dominion over you, for you are under Bernoulli's principle, not gravity if you're flying. And this is this, what it says about our spiritual life. Now let's go to Ephesians 2. Romans 6 is speaking about what our new relationship with sin is supposed to be. We're supposed to be dead to it, not alive from, to it. We're supposed to be out from under it. Uh, our members are supposed to be unyielded to it. And so we find a bit of a clarification of the kinds of things that those verses speak of and what they mean in Ephesians chapter 2. The first three verses. This is speaking in past tense to the Christian. At the same time, the same areas in which Satan once held us as captive are probably the same areas he tries to get at us and defeat us today. And this is what he says. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now I thank the Lord tonight, this is past tense. We can look at that and understand that was back here. That's where that was. And it used to be that way, it says. And if you keep reading, it says, but you've, God has quickened you, raised you up from that. But there's three things here through which Satan wields influence and control over those that still live in that condition. The course of this world, the spirit of evil, the sin nature, the tendency to disobedience and rebellion, and the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I would suggest tonight that when we're living in the new life, when we're living in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, those are the three things that that new law helps us to live above and away from and contrary to. The tendencies of rebellion and disobedience, the lusts of the flesh, the course and the direction of this world, those are three areas that the spirit of life would have us be free from. I like to talk about a couple of those this evening because as we think about what it is that this is trying to accomplish, uh, it comes back to what's over here that we're leaving behind and understanding what's there in order to live here and make a difference in our life. Now, this describes what we used to do. And so when it talks about the course of this world, I think about a current, a river, something that started somewhere and is going somewhere, a certain way of doing things, a certain direction of current, a certain... Uh, and society is like that. Society is not static. Society has direction to it. And I know you know it as well as I do, and probably the older you are, the more you're aware of this, that, that the social and moral standards in our culture, and they do exist, are not really drawn consistently. Um, in the area of morality, for example, indecency in public would be considered perfectly normal on television. And the same people could do it, you know. Uh, human life. There aren't very many days left to separate legal abortion from murder, uh, depending which state you're in. Uh, even things like dress. What's perfectly okay on the beach is not perfectly okay in Walmart, even if the same people that were on the beach 10 minutes ago are now in Walmart. You know, it's different. The line is drawn somewhere, but it's not really a, it's not really a consistent uh, standard. But under that, the ones of you that have been around longer than I have also are quite aware that this, this cultural understanding of, of moral boundaries shifts over time. It doesn't stay the same. It moves. Um, I guess you guys who were younger, like in your teens back in the 60s, remember the kind of shocking influence that rock music was when it came on the scene. I, I've just read about it and heard about it. Different countries responded to it quite differently. Elvis Presley and the Beatles and things, and they were supposedly awful, shocking things. And, but you know, if you go into a store today and hear the Beatles over the loudspeaker, you listen to that and say, that, that almost sounds nice. It's so different than what we normally hear. It's so soft and gentle compared to, you know, what you hear often today. What happened? Or what, how many years downstream? 
even the moral standards surrounding what's considered acceptable in the realm of marriage and sexuality. Back in 1972, the first uh, Supreme Court case about homosexual marriage came before the Supreme Court, and it was thrown out with a single sentence. The court wrote one sentence, and that was enough to put it out. And now we have state after state after state that's capitulating this thing. And what happened? Well, back in 1972, society was at one place. In, 19, in, in 2020, society is a much different place. We're, what, almost 50 years later. And culture moved. Now they're ready for it. Something has happened in the process. Now, Scripture says that Satan is the god of this world, and I believe that he is. He tends to be the influencer, the motivator, the uh, influence in the course and direction of this thing. And when we live back here, we tend to let ourselves just drift along with it and go along with the flow. Now, I know there's some people that feel like this is awful, we've got to stop it, but nobody really knows what to do about it, and so we just sort of accommodate. In a river, it's the dead things that are swept along, and it's the living things that can hold their ground against the current. And society pushes us, not just in the ways that I've mentioned, Concepts of success, uh, how many toys when you die, ways to personal fulfillment, what's okay in dress, uh, music trends, all these things, the pressure is there and push against us. And I grew up along the Stanton River. I had the fortune of doing that. And uh, we lived at a nice peaceful stretch of that river, and so we'd go down there to fish. And if you walk through the trees and see the river, the placid, calm river, you would almost think it could be a pond or a lake because so calm, so nice. But as you looked at it, foam moved along, leaves moved along. It wasn't a lake, it was a river, and it was moving. And you could hear rapids above and rapids below. But I remember as a youth also looking at things in our church and our issues and wondering, what's the big deal? Uh, what's the big deal about this little issue or that little issue or... Uh, and can we just let each generation redecide everything for themselves and each person sort of redecide for themselves what's right, what's, what's acceptable, and decide the merit of things at their face value? And I, I started to realize after a while that life is not a lake either. Life is a river. Culture is a river. And I saw people's music trends shifting. I saw people's uh, acceptable practice shifting. And in our congregations, you look at mothers covering sizes, daughters covering sizes. I did that one time. Not a good thing to compare in church, but everyone shifting, changing. Um, and I realized that uh, what I saw as a young person in my little snippet of experience was like a snapshot of a river. What I was seeing was right there. I didn't notice the larger context. I was just looking at what's right there. And sometimes I wonder, in the, the perspective of our life is so short, I wonder what God sees as he sees the whole thing. And I wonder sometimes um, what he really thinks about things today. He sees the beginning, he sees the end, the changes that evil influences every generation. And we struggle sometimes with nonconformity and why being so different and I want us to understand tonight, there is a pressure out there trying to force us into a mold that the child of God does not belong in. 
And it's trying to make you something that God doesn't want you to be. And uh, we need to be aware of that pressure when we're online, when we're shopping, when we're going to Bible school, when we're in public. There's a pressure. There's a, there's a force there. And there's never, never a time so urgent to know where we stand and not look at, at other moving objects to tell where I'm at. We need to be solid and know where we stand and why we are here. And there's two ways Satan traps us, I believe. First of all, we talked about it last night. There's a line between what our, our understanding of Scripture, our conscience says, this is right, that's not right. And it's dangerous that we cross the line and we know we're out of bounds. That's a dangerous place to be. But it's probably even more dangerous if Satan convinces the line really isn't here, it's over here. Because then we've lost our moral guideline altogether. If that starts moving... You see, before, if I step across the line, I know the line's there. If I come back here, I'm, I'm on safer territory. But if we, if we move the line and convince ourselves, it's really out there. It's not back here at all. Then something really has changed. Now, I'm not advocating changelessness. There are changes for better things. Uh, my, my mom talks about that sometimes. She was so glad that our generation did much better at things like dating standards and uh, even spiritual concerns in her generation might, might have 30, 40 years ago. But I said all this to say this. Whatever the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is, it must empower us to live above and stand against the course of this world that pushes at us every day. That's one thing it does. The second thing it does the second area of this law of sin and death, it operates in the fulfilling of the flesh and of the desires of the, of the of, I'm sorry, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It says that in verse 2, verse 3. James 1 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And there's two words there that bring together, brought together, bring man's downfall. One word is lust, the other word is temptation. Now temptation is the world's problem. That's the devil's problem. And the world in its history, and its, it has twisted the good things God made to allure and entrap all the sensations and all the, the appetites that a man may have. And they've done that, and we know they're out there. But lust, that's our problem. It's concupiscence, the desire inside to fulfill an inordinate desire for the forbidden things, a strong awakening of the desires of the flesh. You know, if it wouldn't be for that appetite that I have inside, all the temptation in the world couldn't do a thing, could it? It'd be like a magnet on wood. And I wish we could live that way. I wish we could just be wooden to the magnets of the world. That'd be great. But we're not. We're, we're built this way. We have this, these desires. And so it's the temptation out there combined with the lust in here, when those two get together, it's like the clicking sound of this and this happening. That's the way temptation works when we're over here. At least it tends to. Um, but here's the question. In the battles we face, who holds the advantage? Is the world or do you? Is it the devil or is it you? Who has the advantage? One... Uh, way to think about that is to think about the scriptural principle we just read. Verily I say unto you, whoever committeth sin is a servant of sin, uh, of whom a man is overcome, this of the same as he brought in bondage. 
So I heard a story about a king one time, and it was given as a true one, I don't know. Uh, two brothers that were vying for the same kingdom, and the one brother overcame the other brother, and the one that had fell in the, or was captured in battle was a very heavy fellow, a man that was given to appetite, and he enjoyed eating. And so his brother did a very kind thing, I guess. He enclosed him in a room, he built this structure around him, and left one small open door in the room and fed him. And every day all he had to do was feed him. Cakes, pies, windmill farm products. Um, now what really kept him captive? Was it his brother or was it himself? If he would have been, if he would have slimmed down for about a month, he might could have gotten out and lived free the rest of his life. But he, he never did. He died in there. This principle is very basic. We're free to choose a master, but after that, we don't have choices in the consequence. We call that bondage when a person is in bondage to sin, when sin is no longer a choice but a predictable response to a, to a stimulus. Let's try this. If we could put one of you guys in a room by yourself with an open bottle of Jack Daniels on the table, what are you going to do about that? Now, if you, we might be a little curious. I said, I never taste this stuff. The barbecue sauce isn't too bad. The, uh, and nobody's going to know if I do or if I don't. Nobody's going to see. But, you know, those of us who are free people, thinking free people, will think, what are the consequences if I do? And what are the consequences if I don't? And you'll probably think, it just isn't worth one taste. I've not really gained anything by it. I'll just... Not do it. We're, we're not in bondage to it. We're free to make our own choices. But I know people who are in a very different state. Uh, I've seen men who are so driven to drink, they drink rubbing alcohol to take the edge off their appetites. And they know what, um, they know what a hangover feels like. And they know how awful it is to come out of it. But given that choice, given that chance, there's no choosing to be done. They've already made the choice a long time ago. An open bottle of alcohol just means drink it. And that's what they do. So what if you're all by yourself and you find a pornographic magazine? What do you do? And you can tell by the cover what it is. And you're there by yourself and there it is. And you have the choice to open the page or not even touch it. And what you do at that moment is probably largely determined by what you did last time. And that might have been determined by what you did the time before. And if you're not enslaved to that, you might look at that and think, what are the consequences if I do this? And what are the consequences if I don't? And if you're a thinking person, you will say, it is by no means worth the risk to explore even a little bit what's inside this. And there are people who know the shame of it and know the cost of it and know the embarrassment of confessing it. But given that choice, because of what they did last time, what they did the time before. Uh, the outcome is almost like predecided because they've been in it that long. That's bondage to me. That's what bondage is. Amen. Bondage is like the life of Samson. He was a strong man with a weak will. And he went to Timnath the first time, sort of just surfing and paging the towns down there, looking at the young ladies and fell in love with one, saw this woman down there, went home and uh, asked his parents to get her for him. So he had this marriage, 
And then he had her taken away, and he lost her because he lost the, the bet or the riddle. Then he went down to Gaza and loved a harlot there, it says. Then he went over to the valley of Sorek and found Delilah there. And that's where he lost his strength, lost his freedom, and everything God had given Samson, he lost it in Philistia and was made a slave grinding corn down there. So Samson's first bondage was city to city, girl to girl. And he didn't want to stop. But his second bondage was dawn to dusk, under the weight of the grindstone, walking in circles without his eyesight, and doing it all for the enemy. And so that's what sin does for us. We, we think we're free. We can make our choices. We can do our things. And we can enjoy life that way. And we don't know that all we're doing is walking in a circle and doing it for the devil and just walking ourselves to death. And when you meet the devil's temptation, we need to know we have the advantage. And whatever the law of the spirit of life is, it must help us live above this. It must help us find a way out of this. And we can. I mean, we come to this point in our life. Who knows what we've done back here? And we know that these things have to be taken care of. And it's, it's not an easy and slow process. But we find help and we look for it. And we look for that help and find it from above. Find it here among each other. I'd like to suggest tonight... Then Romans 2, when, you, when we read that verse, it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Uh, there's two definable parts in that law. There's two things there. The first part of experiencing new, new, the new life is the new birth. And that's the first part. The second part of that is walking in the Spirit. That's the second part. And the first part is God's part. See, we come to the cross, all we're doing is coming and humbly crying out and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, I need help. And as we do that, through our faith and believing and through our repentance and our crying out, God comes and does a miraculous thing there, and that's his part. And we mentioned last night, without reading, and I'd like to take you back to Ezekiel 36. And read a couple of verses there because to me it's a beautiful description of what this does, what it looks like. We stopped short of this last night and I want us to look at it briefly. Ezekiel 36 verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. There are many beautiful things here, but here's the question. If you would clean a pig, how would you go about it? Well, the first thing you have to do is drag him to the water spigot, and get out a soap and a brush and start scrubbing. If it's, you know... Some pigs are very clean because they have the space to do it. But if he was a pig that lived in the mud. And then after you get him all cleaned up and dried, what would you have to do then? You let him go, he's going to be right back where he was and enjoy it. He'd rather be dirty than be clean. Uh, how do you keep a cat clean? Uh, you don't have to. <laughs> he does it on purpose. He loves to be clean. 
He doesn't, you, you don't catch him in a mud puddle unless he, unless he threw him in, unless he fell in. And God says this amazing thing, I will make you clean. And I believe that's a long process. I believe it happens in two ways. When we come from this to this, the immediate thing he does is the forgiveness of past sins. So the things that I've committed and been guilty of, he can pronounce them taken care of and forgiven because of Christ and what he did on the cross. Through his blood, it's, it's erased. But then there's a continual cleansing. There's some habits sometimes that are deeply engraved. There's, there's memories that are deeply rooted. And sometimes as new believers, we get discouraged about what happens from here on. It's a battle. It's a struggle. And uh, it's discouraging. We keep falling and getting up again. But listen, don't plan on giving up or don't plan on escaping God's cleansing until he's finished because he'll stick with it. And God is serious about taking us and cleaning us up and making us an image of his son. That's what he wants to do. And he will stick with it even long after we're, we wish we'd just get out. And I guess we, we must continue the cooperation of that process. But he's, he will get discouraged much less quickly than we will in the process if we stick with him and keep walking with him. He's serious about that. He said, I'll cleanse you from all your idols. You know, we say sometimes, oh, Lord, I want more of you in my life. And he says, oh, son, please make more room, and I'll come. And often that's what it is. The idolatry in our life, the things that tend to take up the space and fill up our lives and clutter our things and, and make us um, distracted and take our affection and devotion. And I think what God wants to do is continue to cleanse and break all the way through this process. And I guarantee it'll last wherever there somewhere. And so everything we have and everything we do is cleansed and acceptable and glorifies God. That's what he wants us to live for. I'll give you a new heart. The difference between a stony heart and a, and a heart of flesh is that one, you can pound on it and it doesn't feel a thing. And the other is a sensitive one that hears and listens. You know, when you speak to a person... And, uh, or when God speaks to a person, how, how hard does he have to speak to get our attention? Can he whisper? Do we hear it? And that's one of the differences between the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. It says, I'll write your laws in my heart. That's in Hebrews 10, 16. I'll put my laws into their heart, and in their minds will I write them. There's a difference in the temptation that we face when the laws are on the inside instead of on the outside. When the law of God is here, it's, there's an inner thing that judges what we think and what we do, and sin feels different. It doesn't feel the same. There's a, instead of enjoyment, there might be remorse. Instead of um, satisfaction, there might be a sadness in what we've done. One mark of a person who has, has, has the law of God in his heart, been born again, how quickly do we repent when we, when we know we've sinned, when we've made a mistake, when we've fallen? There's a young lady one time that we knew that fell into very serious sin. And we counseled her, well, maybe after getting this right with the people in your life, you could stand up and make a public statement, just what you plan to do. And, and the very first opportunity, the first Sunday, she was up on her feet speaking because she did not want to leave this thing undone. She wanted to make sure it was in the clear and get it taken care of. That's the result of a sensitive heart. I'll put in you my spirit. It says, when God brings a person to repentance, it's like he plants a seed in there that 
given time, will grow into something beautiful. Uh, it's young yet. It's incomplete yet, but it's awake. It's growing. It's alive. It's something from God himself. And uh, it doesn't take long before a person uh, knows that the, the restraint that keeps him from sin is not going to be what the church says, not going to be what mom and dad say. It's going to be right here what the Lord God says. And that's what guides a person into righteousness. And we need each other. We need that kind of input. But the whole passage we just read, did you notice who said he would do it? God said, I will do it. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put in you my spirit. And Paul said, as you have received Christ, so walk ye in him. And how do we receive him? We receive him in repentance. We receive him in faith. And that's, that's the attitude that our life takes from then forward. But the second part of this new life and this new law is to walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, as important as the new birth is, whatever God put there, will likely die if I choose not to walk in the Spirit. Uh, the new birth can happen, but it's my job to walk in the Spirit, and that's some things that I do because I choose to. To walk in the Spirit to me is a choice to cooperate. Do you ever think about it? That, that Jesus, being our advocate with the Father, pleads our cause before, before God. And the Spirit comes like an advocate of God to us, and He is with us, pleading God's cause to our heart, saying, this is what God wants. Think about what God says, reminding us of truth. And so to cooperate with that and walk in that and agree with that is walking in the Spirit. That's one aspect of it. Walking in the Spirit is a choice to cooperate with Him, and we want to do that. Walking in the Spirit is maintaining an abiding relationship. First uh, John 4 says, You're of God, little children. This is verse 4. And have overcome them, which because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now this presence of God in our daily life is, is not an accident. His seed is there, his spirit is there, but the choice to remain filled with the spirit and walk in the spirit is because I'm maintaining a conscious and daily relationship with him. And it's characterized by prayer. It's characterized by meditating on God's word. It's characterized by trust and obedience and openness with each other. That's the characteristic of walking this way. And the power of God does not come upon us like rain comes on the ground, but it comes to us as the, as the branch receives from the vine. It's an ongoing abiding relationship with him that allows us to live this way. Sometimes people admit to struggling. They say, I'm feeling defeated. I'm not doing well spiritually. If you ask them, how's it going in your spiritual life? How are you, are you praying? Are you reading God's word? Are you, no, I just no, don't feel like it. And it's true. If, if a person begins to live in sin, he doesn't feel like it. There's nothing like sin to take away your appetite for the Lord. At the same time, there's nothing like walking with the Lord and doing some things on purpose to help curb the appetite for sin. And so we do that on purpose. And walking in the Spirit is daily communing with God. Walking the Spirit is dealing with sin in a punctual way. I guarantee you there's no one here that got up from his knees from the cross and up to this day have never sinned again. I bet that hasn't happened to you. It hasn't happened to me. Uh, we make mistakes. 
We rebel. But 1 John 5, 18 says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, walking in the Spirit will bring a natural clash between what the Spirit wants and what the flesh wants. We're going to face that, a clash between what the Spirit wants and what the flesh wants. And uh, I must quickly resolve in my life that when the Spirit points something out, I will cleanse it, clean it, confess it, and never allow that opening for Satan to gain advantage where God wants to be king in my life and heart. This comes in a couple of ways. Now, sometimes we come to the Lord, we're believers, we're Christians, and then God reminds us of something out here that maybe happened way back here. Oh, yeah. That time. That thing. And we had felt so good about ourselves until God reminded us of that. Now what do we do? Well, the steps to dealing with sins like that are three and are very clear. First of all, we must repent. You know what some people do? Even though they're living here in the new life, they think with nostalgia about the old life. They think back and say, yeah, those good times we used to have. We used to do this and this. Oh, we don't do that anymore. Man, it was you know, sort of nostalgic about that. That's not the attitude of a, of a believer, to be nostalgic about sin. And there's other things we can be nostalgic about, but not that. We repent of it. New attitude toward it. We confess it. And basically, confession is agreeing with God, acknowledging what, what he knew all along. And here's a question sometimes. I've grappled with it. When there's something there that I, I know is wrong before the Lord and I've done wrong, and so I confess it to him. Am I good now? Am I, is that okay now? Um, often it is. Peace comes. We go on. But sometimes there's a niggling something that even though I've recognize the fault and know that I did wrong and know I confess it to the Lord. And sometimes it's helpful, not because we confess to each other in a sense that they forgive my sins, but why is it that we're so scared to tell a trusted friend that I was wrong, but aren't scared to confess to an almighty God that I was wrong? As it made us healthy to do that, take someone in confidence and say, I was reminded that something, something happened in my life. I just want to make sure at least one other person knows about it. And, uh, it's not they forgive sin, but somehow in that openness, we read that the other night, walk in the light, and uh, you have forgiveness of sin, and we'll be in fellowship one with the other. That's 1 John 1, 7. Sometimes confession and repentance requires restitution. That's the third step we can do. If we're willing to confess the wrong and recognize it's wrong, why wouldn't we be willing to try to undo the wrong to the most that's in our ability to do it? Some things you can't. A murderer can never give back what was stolen. Uh, some sins are just not, you can't make restitution besides repentance and asking forgiveness. But some things you can. Sometimes simply going back and asking forgiveness for ruining a reputation or saying things in slander or there's something we can probably do. But that's one step to deal with past sin. And not only that, we also need to deal with the practice of current sin in our life. Because sometimes all of our practice of sin might not stop on day one. We might come into this new life with a few leftovers that we don't recognize yet or have not dealt with fully yet. 
And we believe the Lord has accepted us, but there's still things he's working on our life. And so we need to do the, um, make sure that Satan loses his foothold and loses his access points into my life by cutting them off and closing them up, by dealing with his issues. There are certain sins of the flesh, and there are certain sins that are tied much more directly to the spirit. And these things provide the evil one with an access point that creates weakness in our spiritual life. Immorality is one that's one of the most enslaving sins. And I knew a man once who was, became demonized through involvement with a prostitute. And his life was hectic and immoral and problematic until this day. Uh, witchcraft is one. I don't know how it is around South Boston. I know there's some place in the country. There's pockets of practices that go well past this. And they think this is just normal. This is just good. And there's certain healing things and certain divining things and things that people do because, well, it works. So it must be good. And all it is is harking back to the kinds of things that God says will not enter the kingdom of God. And so we need to understand those things. We need to, when God lays his finger there, we deal with them. Because all that does is create weakness where there should be strength. And music. I'm not going to preach about music tonight, but that is one we need to be careful about too. And many people live out here, but listen back here. And the effects and the influences of back here have a fish hook in their heart way out here. And it doesn't create strong Christian walks. It creates weakness in that area of their life. We will never truly deal with sin and be free of it. And so we see the, the pain of it, the wrong of it, and repent of it. And so we need to be careful about that. Walk in the Spirit is a cross-bearing attitude. The instrument that Jesus used to deal death to sin was the cross. He carried it, he bore it, he conquered our sins on it. But this cross is not the only one, by the way. There's one right here waiting for you. As we come to this cross, we pick up our cross and follow Jesus with it in a symbolic sense. You know, the law of sin and death has one handle, and that's our flesh. Everything that... that uh, Satan uses in that sense to get a hold of us and tempt us is our uncrucified flesh. And the goal of bearing the cross is to weaken and put to death that handle so that Satan in his grip loses access. And so we do that. We identify with Christ. Cross bearing is identifying with Jesus. Some people struggle with that. Jesus carried his cross right down Main Street, Jerusalem. Would you be willing to carry one down Main Street, South Boston for him? And be identified and say, Lord, I belong to you and I don't care who knows it. That's cross-bearing. The denial of self-will. Jesus' cross was a step-by-step -step process toward, toward Calvary, and every one was a choice. And he, had, he went there because the night before he chose to say, not my will but thine be done, and that's why he carried the cross. Every moment on it was a choice. And every day you choose it, we choose it. Am I willing today to carry the cross for him? The cross is a continual battle against sin. Paul said this. He said, uh, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. We had a double funeral here. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the world is dead. As far as the world is concerned, I'm dead. And it's, a, it's a symbol of our ongoing struggle against sin and its nature. I, years ago in Guatemala, knock on the door, a Honduran man there 
homeless. And he had just traveled up from Honduras looking for work, looking for a place to live, and he said, could I help him out? And so we had rented a house just around the corner for somebody else, and it wasn't used yet, so we found him a place to stay. We found a job for him close by. And this man was a believer. And he said that years before, when he, before he was a Christian, he was a drug user. And I'm not sure what drug he used, but he uh, had certainly developed a craving for it. And he said when he became a Christian, he realized this is one thing that has to stop. And so his habit was to come home from work and use his drug of choice, and then that was his time to use He depended on that. And so the first evening he came home and prayed and cried and trembled and resisted, and he made it. And the next day he came home from work, same thing. How many of you drink coffee here, by the way? <laughs> Can you imagine? Let's just drop it, cold turkey. This man went a whole year and every night to crying out, praying, God help me, before the desire went away. And that's what the cross does, the willingness to say no to my flesh and yes to what the Spirit of God wants, even though it hurts like everything. You know, we often wish there was a magic bullet, there's a pill we could take to conquer this thing called sin and its nature. But I think victory is often won the long, hard, slow way because of our, our choices. We, we feed the mind with good while starving it of evil. And we choose to walk in the spirit even though the pool of what was back there is still strong enough to taste it. But we choose this. It's not a three-day project. When I was about 17 years old, we went to a wedding out in Indiana. And like little free Mennonite boys, the first thing we did that evening was go out and rent some movies because we were away from home. And I'll tell you, the things that I saw that night stayed with me for years. And they come back so strong, so vivid. And it wasn't until a long time later those things lessened their effect on me. That's probably because you know, I wasn't used to that. But over time, as you feed on better things, the old things fade. And it's better not to make the choices like that. But the way to get out of them, the effects of them, is simply by doing this, carrying the cross, making choices to feed yourself with the good while starving yourself of the, of the wrong and walking in the Spirit. If Romans 6 describes how to live out of sin, and Romans 8 describes no condemnation in this new spiritual law, why was Romans 7 ever written? Do you ever ask yourself that? Romans 7 is the chapter, I know what I should do and I can't do it. I know what I shouldn't do and I end up doing that. And he finishes that, that chapter by saying, woe is me. Um, I can't remember what all he says, but, but uh, he feels helpless. He feels hopeless. There's a tremendous tension there between serving the Lord with the mind and with the flesh uh, being drawn and serving sin. And people just describe that differently. Some would say that any kind of sin in a believer's life is proof of condemnation. If you say you've come through here, now you're out here, and you fall into sin, that's because you never came through here. You've got to start all over. There's a, there's a consequence to that kind of thinking. Well, that kind of thinking is in a congregation, and there's, the, the problem is pressure toward pretense. 
if I confess this thing, if I let other people know that I'm struggling with this, they're going to say, do not pass go, do not collect 200. Go back to square one. And so we don't admit things. We cover them up. We try not to let other people know. Then there's the other extreme. People say, oh, sin, that's the believer's normal experience. Uh, we're never meant to live sinlessly anyway, so what's the difference? This point is to try too hard. Do the best you can. But If salvation is by grace, then no amount of my personal effort can make any difference, then why bother? But I believe that holiness does matter, but sometimes the process is more important to God than instant results. And I guess it wouldn't be hard for God to make us sinless tonight at 9 o'clock. I wish he would. And God has done that. Sometimes the drunkard loses his appetite from one day to the next. The drug addict just loses all desire for it. Uh, people that lived in sin just change overnight with such a shining testimony there's never looking back. And I think we need to pray for that. We need to pray for, for, uh, for real conversions. Conversions that really do a good job. But God doesn't always do that. Sometimes he, things go slower, but he does provide a process and does provide the resources by which to do it. And I think that more important to God than instantly being sinless is learning to love righteousness and hate sin because I've experienced both and I know the difference. Israel was in Egypt for hundreds of years and God could have taken them out any day but let things ripen and ripen and ripen. Until Exodus 2, it says, it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And it came to the point they were so burdened and so miserable they cried out to God and groaned like they perhaps never had and God heard it and God listened and God took them out. I wonder sometimes if our flippant attitude towards sin, our nonchalant approach to dealing with these things, it, 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 it isn't time yet. It isn't, God sees that we're not, we haven't learned it yet. And, and there's nobody that makes sober choices about sin as a person that really understands the consequences of sin because they've been there, they've understood it. Being free from this bondage is not necessarily sinlessness, but it's when the truth, we're restored our, in our faculties to make logical choices about sin. You see, a person that had been a drunkard or had been in a pornography, but they've been restored to the point that if they have this temptation, they're free enough to make a, a logical choice. This is the consequence of this. This is the consequence of that. I choose that. That's where we want to be. And the person that's got to that point makes those choices as one who has understood and loathed the grip of sin to the point they would rather die than go back. Zach Poonin is a preacher in India. And he said once that sin is like sickness and holiness is like health. And how healthy do you want to be? If you go to the doctor with cancer, with leukemia, the doctor, if he would ask you, is 50% okay? Is 75% all right with you? You would say, no, 100%. I want to be done with this for good. Uh, Paul said, but now you put off also all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. 
That's like saying be free from all cancer, all coronavirus, all kidney stones, all gallbladder issues. Be free of those things. See, God's will for us is spiritual health. And we don't find it under sin. We find it living above the control of sin. And when God says, be holy as I am holy, it's like saying, be healthy like I'm healthy. That's a healthy life. Be free of sin. We talk about these two spiritual laws tonight. The law of sin and death that will only lead to one place. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that leads us to victory after victory. And I think we'll never find freedom from the first until we understand and exercise the power of the second. And uh, I think our battle against spiritual gravity will probably continue until the day we die. I don't know you older gentlemen here what you would say about that. Is that true? Well, we struggle in the flesh until the day we die. I guess there's something along the way all the time. And so we can never run out of gas. We can never turn off our engines. As long as we're pushing toward the finish, there's enough power there to help us fly. And we can live above these things. If we're not doing it right. You need to check both these. I guess it's like two wings of an airplane. Born of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And make sure both of those are in their proper place. And the question is not, do you believe this is true? The question is, is it happening to you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that from the beginning you planned a solution for sin in Jesus Christ. And thank you that it wasn't only Jesus Christ that died on the cross, but the Spirit of God that can help us walk in this life from victory to victory. And we struggle, Lord. I struggle. We realize that we are weak things. And thank you for the continual avenue of prayer and, for, and repentance. And we fall and fall short. I just pray that you would help us to understand our weakness and bring into our lives the, the things of the Lord that would help us to walk the way you want us to walk. Bless each of us here as we consider these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I will give a short invitation, but it's not to everyone who struggles with sin. All of us struggle with something. But here's the question. Are you struggling with sin as a free person or a person in bondage? When you face these things, do you say, I have a choice here? Are the things that you know you've fallen and fallen and fallen and fallen? And even though you're doing your best in all of there is your life, it just feels like there's one thing that has a grip that it shouldn't have. The path to freedom is more than just trying harder. The path to freedom probably includes bringing people on board to pray with me and encourage me and give me some tools to work with and then uh, applying the things we've maybe heard tonight. Let's sing one verse of Just As I Am. And if you sense this enough in your heart, you'll have to stand to your feet where we are, where you are, and we can... Um, Notice that, approach you at some point. You can find someone in your life to help you out. And uh, recognize that you're willing to deal with this in a serious way. Can you lead us in that verse? Whoever the song leader is here. First verse. <laughs>